Cult Film Society Cult Film Podcast Podcast. That's more like it, and it's the theme to A Taste of Blood. One of the pop culture presents we'll be unwrapping today. Because this is the Bristol Cult Film Society Cult Film Podcast Podcast. It's December 2023, which means it's time for episode 3, Christmas Carnage in Clifton! I'm your host, Shameful Steve Noble, and today we bring together three Christmas crackers. Cult movies chosen by members of the most erudite and informed cult film club on the internet, the Bristol Cult Film Society. Have they brought us some stars to follow? Will they shepherd us to new heights of movie obscurity? Or have they just picked a bunch of turkeys? <laughs> it's the time of year when you'd expect three kings, but we only managed one. He's Bouncing Brendan King, founder member of this very Facebook group, and he's brought us the delights of 1973's The Mad Bomber, a movie so sleazy you'll need to rinse your eyeballs immediately after watching. You're a pig. Did you hear what I said? At Christmas you get berries, but not cranberries. Roddenberry! She's our Kelly hero, Fancy Nancy Kelly, and she's dug into the tundra and unearthed a rarely seen Gene Roddenberry pilot, Spectre, carbon dating from 1977. And finally, how's that turkey looking? Did Mum remember to cook it for long enough, or is it a little underdone? Maybe there's a taste of blood. It doesn't matter that it's Christmas, because it's always Patrick Burns night. Our own horrific hypnotist, our master of mesmerism, at Derren Brown by daylight, Patrick Burns is the type A with the type O, as we watch Herschel Gordon Lewis, A Taste of Blood. Hiya, governor. Ain't that fit not for the devil? I wouldn't know. Is my luggage aboard? What now, governor? You're in fight room number seven. Uh, down the deck and up the stairs there. But first, a disclaimer. Black Friday has a special meaning to members of the Bristol Cult Film Society. While the rest of humanity lies python-like, digesting the prior day's gobblement, the avid BCFSer is up at the crack of dawn, fingers poised, browser tabs open. It's Black Friday. Will there be something vital from vinegar syndrome? Something premiered from something weird, or some other mother from Warner Brothers, it doesn't matter. You don't need grocery money, you just ate for the month, and surely Crazy Aunt Lucy will give you rent money in your Christmas stocking. So go ahead, bag those Blu-ray bargains, get those jello, collect them kaiju. Disclaimer. There is an inherent risk of ultra-high definition 4K Blu-ray DVD VHS Betamax or even Laserdisc purchasing while listening to this podcast. The management accepts no responsibility for lost income, potential bankruptcy or lost relationships while using the facility. Any incidents of t-shirt purchasing, wobbly-headed rubber monster or vinyl soundtrack ordering are done under the listener's personal agency and do not reflect the intention of the podcast. The podcast is for recreational use only and not for profit. However, should an occasion arise when any listener or organisation should like to forward large sums of cash to the proprietors, this can and will be arranged swiftly and at the listeners or organisations convenience. But hey, perhaps you're not that person. Perhaps you're the carer for a sufferer from Blu-ray collector syndrome. What about you? What do you do to help the afflicted? What do you buy the person who has everything? And I mean every thing. The John Carpenter thing. The Howard Hawks thing from another world. Even the stinky 2011 remake of The Thing. I don't know what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Your Christmas counsellor is the one and only Blu-ray bloodhound, Mr. John Tiberius Kirk. And he's coming up at the end. The moment draws near. 
but what's that voice? It's a message from our founder, the one and only Steve Naive, and his words of Yuletide wisdom. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of just a bum, which is what I am. It's the last time I go to that plastic surgeon. Steve Naive's words of Yuletide wisdom there. Now gather round, children. There's plenty of space under the tree. That pine scent you smell? That's just our old friend Krampus, here to tickle your neck as you hear about these ghosts of Christmas presents. There's a stocking on the mantelpiece and the smell of burning flesh from the embers on the fire. In fact, from the fireplace, there can be heard the moans and yelps of a jolly fat bearded man who's never going to make it down as far as the hearth. We've got some gifts for you. Some gold with a little bit of mould. Some Frankenstein frankincense. And some myrrh to make you go brrr. Here's Brendan, the first of our three kings. I am Brendan, founding member of the Bristol Cult Film Society. Uh, I do feel, I have to be honest with you, a bit like a fraud, like Jean-Michel Jarre, given everybody else's massive, massive film knowledge. I tend to just bumble along and, and talk about what I like. Um, so it's very humbling, but uh, a great community to be part of. Hi, I'm Nancy. Um, I'm part of the Canadian contingent for the Bristol Cult Film Society. I have been online for about 20 years now talking about movies, and usually you can find me in the Bristol site these days. Yeah, I, I'm Patrick. I'm also a founding member. So about five years with the Bristol Cult Society, I joined just after what I call the crossing uh, in a reference from Dune and uh, from the from the previous site that I think a lot of us were on. And like Nancy, I've been kicking around online really oh, since the mid 90s. I was uh, on a lot of the film boards uh, and, uh, you know, really found my home here at Bristol Cult Film Society, which is just by far the best of the groups out there. And I, and I mean that sincerely. So thank you for having me. And like Brendan, I feel like I'm a bit of a fraud. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's probably the same case for all of us, really. But the, the reason I wanted to get us all here, uh, you know, you know this, I've said it before. Um, I find the commentary that goes on in the group and the knowledge in the group is amongst the best I've found. It really is. You know, what a bunch yeah. of clever people. So we're here to let the side down tonight and um, see what we can <laughs> see what we can provide in terms of information and fun uh, for this evening. So, so Brendan, Brendan, the Mad Bomber. I didn't know about them again. Of, of the three films tonight, I'd, I'd heard of precisely one in advance, uh, and the one I'd heard of was Patrick's. Uh, but Brendan, tell us about your choice of movie. Well, the Mad Bomber. Many people toss around the, the term uh, masterpiece these days, and this film is absolutely not a masterpiece. <laughs> what it is, is an outrageous piece of exploitation fare. thinking about is I want to catch this son of a bitch before he blows up Los Angeles. Women have been used and abused long enough. We are free at last. Free of male domination. It's people like me who make our world filthy. I'm a pig. The day of the male chauvinist is gone. Women are no longer second-class citizens to be looked upon as love objects of men. Now, because of what you have done, it is necessary for me to punish all of society. Yeah, that's him. That is him. You are going to do nothing, understand? But because you have a nice car and I have to walk, that means you own the sidewalk? Uh, so in a nutshell, 
a psychotic madman is seemingly indiscriminately bombing uh, LA. The police have two witnesses, one of whom is a serial rapist and the other his victim, who is a mute lady in a psychiatric unit of a, of a mental hospital. Uh, the police then have to race against time to find, track down the rapist so that they can identify the mad bomber before he strikes again. Which is quite the synopsis. <laughs> and even that doesn't convey the power of this movie. So what made you want to recommend it to us? Uh, the, despite uh, only being born in 1982, the 70s are by, by a distance my favourite uh, decade for music and film. Uh, there's just something about the 70s that uh, the, that sort of exploit the explosion uh, post the 70s. The 70s, uh, the 60s had the, the sort of free love uh, and the move into colour and everything that came along with that. But the 70s just had everything uh, in, in terms of uh, the most batshit crazy plots that you'll ever hear in your life. That's the decade to go to. Uh, so I wanted something from the 70s that was maybe not as well known as it should be uh and uh, like i said at the outset this is uh top exploitation fair <laughs> when did you first see it oh uh maybe a year or so ago maybe a year and a half ago i just stumbled across it i, I tend to go into a lot of films blind i just i have such uh huge bulging watch lists on uh all of the various uh streaming services that i use and i've got literally hundreds of bits of paper strewn about my room like a serial killer with names of films and ratings and uh, brief sentences about what they're, they're, they are. And I tend to just pick at random. Um, so, yeah, this this one, uh, it's a uh, Burt I. Gordon film as well, um, known, of course, for his uh, 50s and 60s monster masterpieces like Earth versus the Spider. And he would go on after this uh, to make Food of the Gods as well, which is brilliantly rubbish. Um, but interestingly, this film is his highest rated movie uh, of all the movies that he made uh, on IMDb. Uh, and I think that is for sheer ballsiness, uh, to be completely honest with you, because uh, the the plot is already outrageous. But the way it comes together is just, well, it's magnificent. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way it sort of tosses exploitation left, right and centre, really. Yeah, you can't just have a serial card, can't just have a rapist, can't just have a bomb. We're going to have the two of them intertwined somehow. And also some great casting in there. Amazing great casting in there. Yeah, I, I mean Chuck Connors is fantastic as the the mad bomber. He's it's interesting. He's quite a, a tall, hulking figure, um, but he's playing this very uptight conservative type. Um, but given the sort of slightly weird glasses that he's wearing and the way he carries himself, he's very intimidating. Uh, mm. the, I mean, the opening scene of the film, he is walking behind a chap that chucks some litter on the floor, and uh, he then. People like you who make our world filthy, my friend, you're a pig. Makes him pick up the litter, and that's just the first introduction to the character. Of course, mm. immediately after that, he'll go on to plant a bomb in a high school <laughs> or a college, is it? I, I think perhaps, uh, and uh, explodes immediately, killing uh, several teenagers. Uh, and that's the opening uh, uh, couple of scenes from the film. So you get a good idea of of his character. Um, and what's fascinating about his character is as well, it's very much a proto uh, Michael Douglas in Falling Down. I don't want lunch. I want breakfast. Thought the same thing. Thought exactly yeah. the same thing, yes. Yep, yep. Mm -hmm. Just this sort of general disdain for, uh, for society in general and the way he goes about himself. There's some brilliant little set pieces in there, like uh, the guy that toots at him when he's crossing the road so he <laughs> grabs his keys out of his car and puts them in the mailbox things like that um, <laughs> fantastic uh, and he of course is um, uh, his uh, opposite in the film is the the hard-nosed detective tracking him down and that is played by Vince Edwards uh, whose character has the brilliant name Geronimo Minnelli <laughs> now, when he first says when, he first says, when the chief says to him hey Geronimo you think he's taking the mitt right you're calling him right. Geronimo because exactly you want to jump out of windows right. and stuff Not I have to look name. that up <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know who, who has the name Geronimo oh, this guy <laughs> Hang on. well the famous chief once did yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, I think he very much earned it over the course of the film as well, because uh, he has some pretty outrageous ideas about policing. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry, again, I'm just going to dip in there. Uh, when he's talking to Neville Brand, uh, sorry, I haven't mentioned Neville Brand yet, Neville Brand, our serial rapist, and says, oh, the rapes you did, oh, I'll leave that to the vice squad. I'm thinking, <laughs> that's, that's actually quite serious, mate. That's something perhaps you should be focusing on as well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when they finally catch up with Neville Brand and they uh, they uh, manage to arrest him, it is for attempted rape. Uh, and they immediately say, well, we've, uh, we'll release him and we'll have to bring him back in on some bogus traffic charge so that we can talk to him a bit later in the movie. Well, I, I think the crime that you picked him up for is probably enough to keep him in, uh, but apparently not. Bigger fish to fry at the moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Neville Brand, who you mentioned as well, he's he uh, a, a quite a small role for him, but he is fantastically creepy as the serial rapist. You don't get to see much of him in the early doors, um, uh, aside from the sort of POV uh, sexual assaults that he commits. Um, but then uh, later on, when uh, Vince Edwards uh, finally catches him and they're working together, there's some great uh, character work between the two. Um, he's sort of very reluctant to work with the police. Uh, but then when he figures out that he can get something out of it in return, then he's like, sure, sure. And of course, um, yes, uh, you mentioned the, the, the Geronimo. Of course, with the actor was, Vin, was Ben Casey on the TV. It was Dr. Ben Casey in the long Yeah, run. Ben Casey. Drama. Yeah, took me Again, a second. Not known to us Brits, but uh, right. tremendous. Uh, Nancy, what did you make of it? I really liked it, and I was really glad to see Chuck Connors, because he's just such a big character and he brought a lot of life to the role um it was really interesting to see how the character was portrayed just across just his militant insistence on people need to behave a certain way and meanwhile he's out there bombing things and just the fact that they're looking for an accused rapist to you know team up with to get his information about was just wild to me like out of all the credible people that you could look for to investigate, like you're looking for somebody that is probably not likely to want to cooperate with you. So, but I mean, again, how do you feel? I mean, the sexual politics are all over the place. It's, oh, it's, not, it's very much a film of its time, I thought. Yes. I mean, yeah. one of the bombings is a, a women's liberation meeting, yes. <laughs> which was really <laughs> too subtle, I thought. And some of the bombings were done very well. Uh, there was um, the, the one with the school kids at the start. Uh, they looked like they were real young teenagers, very close to an actual explosion. Yes. Uh, they all seemed to be very close to the stuff going off. I was quite surprised. Obviously, health and safety, uh, along with sexual politics, was not the main concern back in the <laughs> 1970s. <laughs> so, Patrick, what, how did you find it? So I I really enjoyed the contrast of the actors. I mean, they weren't playing to type in these films, right? So Neville Brand, he was a Western guy, combat film, always played a heavy, tough guy, very rarely played what I would call sympathetic. I really believe, and you know, this may not be the consensus for you, but I, there there are the interplay between him and and Geronimo, you see a lot of charm in the guy, which you don't actually see in other Neville Brand roles. So I, I think he was playing against type, which I, I, I really enjoyed. I found him, you know, a charming antagonist. Now, flip it over to Chuck Connors, who, you know, The Underwater City of Captain Nemo is one of my favorite films. And he plays just the most elegant, refined person, well-spoken. This is Chuck Connors again. I give you a fair warning, Captain Nemo. If there is a way of leaving Templemere, I'll take it no matter what it involves. Always played the gentleman cowboy, right? He did, you know, he played violent roles before, but he could be known for really subdued, you know, upper class type of roles and, and sort of seeing that flip, right? But, the, but what's really weird to me about the film, particularly in the final sequences, and I don't, I don't want to go too much into that, but where he realizes he's trapped and you see the flashbacks of what has brought him to this sad state, mm. right? You realize he's probably not such a bad guy. And it, for me, it really tore up my heartstrings. And I, I found myself being, uh, you know, less enamored with the criminal protagonist on the Neville Brand side, who was, I think, deliberately tried to be played more charmingly than Chuck Connors, who is obviously just a repulsive character. And, but then when, when you see, you know, the depth of the character, it also really speaks to, I think, Chuck Connors as an actor, 
Um, the, the type of dramatic range he actually had. I mean, people, I think, maybe pigeonhole him. But uh, it's just, he's a brilliant actor, and this was a brilliant role for him. I, I You know, the film really ventured into that flawless area that I, I look for. I mean, it's most definitely an exploitation film. So your catchphrase, very... catchphrase had to come out at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, borrowed, yeah, borrowed from Kingsley Amos. Um, yeah, so I... I, I I was frankly blown away by the film. And at the end of it, I, I, I really wanted to watch it again. And I'm, I, sorry. I believe... I'm sorry, frankly blown away. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, got it. Did you, did you see what I just did there? I did, I did. <laughs> yeah. So it, tur it turns out I actually had it, uh, but under a different title. And I, I think I vaguely remember seeing it, but it didn't really make an impression on me. But when, you know, when a man of, of, of Brendan's taste because <laughs> you should watch this. I, uh, I I really dug into it, and I was very very satisfied. That's great. So, That's great. <laughs> I was um, so the great joy of of working on the pod is inevitably I get to see movies that I haven't seen, and and as I say, two of the three I'd never heard of, let alone not seen. Uh, and this was definitely one of those. I, I love that sort of seventies TV movie feel. Funny enough, that yeah. you had to start with, yeah. although blatantly wasn't one as it went along. Um, Lots of things I loved about it. Uh, I liked. Uh, was that was that deliberate? Was it was it supposed to be maybe a pilot? What? There's not a lot about the production, the history, how Bird Eye Gordon got involved. I mean, he was a he was a Hollywood icon, at least in the B movies. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I don't think it was. I just maybe. I mean, maybe it's just slightly cheap. I don't know. What was interesting? Uh, do you see that? Do you see the who came up with the story? The, the the writer was a guy. The original writer was a guy called Mark Beaton. Who's other main yeah. thread is is help by the Beatles. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just any. Yes, <laughs> yes. Now, could you have yes. more contrasting screenplays than those? Um, so right. that was intriguing. Uh, there was uh, so much to to uh, enjoy. And he didn't do much else. No, well, I think he was mostly a novelist. Um, right. Seems to be published about a dozen novels, so that was quite intriguing. Yeah. Uh, I did like that. I, I loved all the IT bits. I'm a, I'm a computer nerd. I was uh, I was in the IT industry oh. in the eighties. Yeah. Uh, the computer room is brilliant, where they pretend there's a reception desk and it's actually just a printer. You can see them using a printer as the pretend reception desk. Yeah. Um, but I also like the fact the the computer has all the answers. You know exactly. Uh, Give me uh, analysis of a psychotic bomber, please. Yeah, sure. Right. I think that, that wouldn't be bad going. Wouldn't be bad going for Chat GPT now, would it? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, far more advanced than our AGIs currently. <laughs> so that was quite fun. Uh, okay, two more things I want to mention. Um, the one is um, the, the voice of the profiler. Where it was just like, I don't know, one of the Three Stooges or something. He says, okay, friendly, you should take your time and look at these facial contours. <laughs> that, that made me laugh a lot. And then when they do go through the photo fit, now the photo fit, they take bloody ages to go through the photo fit, don't they? I mean, yeah, that took that, a long time. They're obviously delighted they've got access to some real photo fit kits. They take a very mm -hmm. long time doing it, only then to visibly chop up a photo of Chuck Connors and put <laughs> that in place. Yeah. And I'm thinking yeah. by the A very recent one. A very That's recent true. photo. Yeah. And I'm With thinking also... Haircut. I'm thinking also by the end, I'm thinking... You haven't asked him about his height. He's six foot five. Ask him how tall he was, because that's quite distinguishing. He's six foot bloody five. Much easier. There's not any of them about. Uh, so anyway, the top choice of movie. Thank you, Brendan. Uh, I really, I really, again, I, 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 it's genuine pleasure doing this because I always get to see lots of interesting stuff. Hadn't seen it, um, but no, fabulous. Uh, great choice of film. Thank you. Sebastian. Kill us all. Defy him. <laughs> a bargain stuck is a bargain made. A bargain made. That's the law. That's the law. Nancy, tell us about Spectre. Now, can I just, before I ask you to tell you about Spectre, I thought I was a Roddenberry nerd. I thought I was a Gene Roddenberry nerd. I'd never bloody heard of this. Where did you find it? Uh, it was on my YouTube watch list. So when we had mentioned that we were looking for things on YouTube, I just kind of went through my list and watched a couple movies and so I turned that one on and with a kind of disclaimer about spoilers once we had the succubus eating book I was just kind of like sold <laughs> <laughs> 
So had you seen it a while ago or is this quite recent? No, I just watched it just now for this. <laughs> oh, great. Okay. So a true discovery on the way. This is what we like. <laughs> so do you want to give us a quick synopsis? So in an attempt to capitalize on the satanic panic happening, Gene Roddenberry wrote this TV pilot and it got turned into a movie when they decided not to pick it up. And it's about a renowned criminologist and a cultologist played by Robert Culp. And he teams back up with a former associate of his that they have kind of a not great relationship. And he's a forensic pathologist and they're trying to determine whether or not the aristocratic scion family is being influenced by dark forces. You mentioned it was a pilot. It had something that format about it, as in there was very much a framing device of meeting up in the house and then going mm -hmm. off and having the adventure and coming back to the house. Do you think it would have made a good basis for a show? I think it would have been a fantastic show. <laughs> it kind of gave me um, like Sapphire and Steel vibes. Like they could have gone out and done all these different things. It would have been exciting to see the different uh, adventures that they go on. <laughs> <laughs> they were quite, I mean, the one thing that, that did strike me, they're quite a slightly elderly duo for, yeah. you know, for, for a, a TV, you know, hot, hot pairing of male leads, really. <laughs> Do you think they're all old friends of Jean's? Maybe. <laughs> that could definitely be a thing. What did you make of uh, the, the creature effects, etc.? Oh, I love them. I thought that they were so fun, especially towards the end when things just kind of start hitting the fan. It's just the old school, you know, prosthetics and... Mm. that kind of vibe of course it was Albert Whitlock who did a lot of the Hammer stuff um, very much a man of the 1970s and it seems to have been for, well, I, I, I couldn't quite decide um, it's listed as a British TV movie on uh, IMDB but I presume there must have been US funding for it it doesn't, doesn't seem to be a UK movie except for a lot of the production team but obviously written by Gene Roddenberry and Sam Peebles who was another Star Trek yeah. uh, scriptwriter. So unusual in that respect. And a great cast, of course, great cast of British bit players. Were you familiar with those, Nancy, in your um, um Not so much the bit players, like some of the bigger people I knew previously, but it was a new adventure for me. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for bringing it to our attention. Uh, as I say, I, I, I mean, first of all, uh, as a Brit, we always love it when uh, we get... This is what I was going to say, a US view on what London looks like, which is you can do the whole city centre in three minutes and see everything uh, in a car. But, but that's all right. That's fine. Uh, and it's, it's good fun. But then if it was British production as co-production, that's it's quite weird. Um, uh, OK, uh, Brendan, what did you think? Uh, did you did you enjoy um, Spectre? First of all, around these parts, we are huge fans of professional Columbo botherer Robert Culp. Have I succeeded in getting through <coughs> and stimulating you? Definitely. Yes. Yes, I'm going to give it all a lot of thought. He was never better than this. He went to town on this one. He was hamming it right up. The the whole side plot about not having a heart, <laughs> meaning that he had to fall to the ground clutching his chest every uh, 15 minutes was... <laughs> Um, his relationship with Gig Young was brilliant. It was a great on-screen uh, on uh, chemistry there. Great to see a young John Hurt. Um, mm -hmm. The British aristocracy being in with the devil is uh, something I can get behind. <laughs> <laughs> it's still happening to this day. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I was surprised that it hadn't been picked up, uh, 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 knowing that it was uh, a, a pilot going in, because I think they really had something there. It, there was a sort of, uh, sort of, gung-ho John Pertwee Doctor Who meets John Constantine vibe going on there that I thought they really had something I'm surprised it didn't get mm. picked up so I, I I did have a similar tagline your Sherlock Holmes meets John Constantine it's, it's, it's sorry your John Constantine line is very good uh, I was going to say Sherlock Holmes meets Dennis Wheatley uh, in the mansion where they filmed yeah. The Stud uh, a year after the owner <laughs> <laughs> when British demonic possession was just happening um, but it, I, I definitely thought there's a lot of Sherlock Holmes in there um, yes, I agree. Holmes and Watson, and yeah, the pairing of them. Uh, so, so that was interesting for me. Uh, go on, Patrick. What do you think? I uh, yeah, I mean, 
so much talent went into this film. It was really, it was really amazing to see. You know, but Brendan mentioned the British aristocracy. None better than James Villiers, right? Oh, oh always James Villiers. So James oh my God. Did I say his name right? I've never heard it pronounced. <laughs> but I, this was a throwback to Blood from the Mummy's Tomb and other great roles. I mean, he was just so fantastic in the film. I had I had hoped, or I would hope, if, if they had developed this in the series, that somehow he survived and he would be, you know, their man in London or Ooh, wherever the nice hell it was supposed to be, right? And then, you you know, you, I really enjoyed the two female characters, Lilith in the beginning, Majel Barrett, right? Roddenberry's wife at the time. And then Jenny Runnaker, who, whose name I forget as the, as the driver, as the chauffeur. Yes. I, I, I could see in a, in a projected future in a series where these two would be sort of bookends to one another, right? <laughs> they really sort of were complementary uh, in terms of, or I could see it in, in, in terms of the drama and the narrative. Um, the, uh, I just, I just want to, I just want to make a shout out to uh, John Cameron who did the music, which I thought was uh, superb. was incongruous to start with I, I grew more with it but to start with I thought wow what am I watching here because it was quite almost um uh eccentric I thought well I immediately had to jump on the IMDB and figure out who did this and lo and behold he was the composer for one of my absolute favorite films the rise and rise of Michael Rimmer with uh with uh, uh old Peter and uh yeah I was you know and then the way they the way the film got just about every 70s demonic witch swinging decayed aristocracy <laughs> trope into it i'm going to give full credit to sam peoples right so so you know when he originally did the the first star trek uh uh pilot the cage right he was brought in to give roddenberry science fiction ideas roddenberry really didn't know much about science fiction he envisioned it as like a horatio hornblower and then he brought him back for the second pilot, which actually actually sold. And Roddenberry went through such a terrible period in the 70s, pilot after pilot after pilot after pilot, failed, right? Yeah. And until until Star Trek Phase Two, which ultimately became the motion picture, uh, I, I believe he brought in Sam Peoples. He's like, look, I got to sell something. I need ideas. I want something that's going to resonate across every demographic. And you're the man. So that's my story. So this must have been not far from uh, Star Trek motion picture. There must have been almost been in development. Two years. Two years. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. But you're so right. He was in the development of phase two, which when Star Wars came out, Paramount came back to him and said, all right, we're going full blown motion picture. But there was that time he couldn't get arrested, could he? Roddenberry, not for no. a very, very long time. No. Which seems incredible right now. Right. <laughs> this Quester tapes, the Planet Earth series, Strange New World. I mean, just just crazy. You know, great output. Great cult films now, right? His loss is our gain. That's absolutely right. Uh, there, was, there was so much to enjoy about it. Um, you it. talked about talked about Gig Young. Um, I learned that there was the line he used at the start, which was there's a, an Irish comic called Dylan Moran. I don't know if you guys know him. It's very good. And there's one line he says, oh, "I did not, I did not propose to that woman. She assumed I proposed." Or oh, that's me delivering it as Dylan Moran. I did not propose. The woman assumed I proposed. Yes. But the older the wine is, the gooder it is. <laughs> it was a brilliant delivery. Much better than I did it justice. I'm cutting that bit as well. Um, and Young you... was a full-blown alcoholic during this Oh, period, oh that's I right. Mean, but he's yeah. cured, luckily, within five minutes. So that's okay. Yeah, exactly. In the film, at least. I also yeah. thought, did you notice how Gloria, um, sorry, how Majel Barrett had been done up, how she'd been made up for her part? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, she well, was, she was she Dracula's was daughter. Mysterious. She was a spit yes. for Dracula's daughter, Gloria Holden. Which I thought was was a nice bit of uh, nice nod mm. there. Uh, oh, sad! The sad bit about Gig Young with us as well. I don't know if you're yeah, aware that's... of the, the sad story there. Yeah. Well, he met his his wife, uh, his what fifth or sixth wife on set, and then ended up uh, murdering her and killing himself a year after filming this. That's and right. I was a, a bit flippantly wondering whether there was a connection between the Satanism in the movie. <laughs> This always happens with horror movies, doesn't it? Uh, like there was the curse of The Exorcist. Uh, yeah, there was even the curse mm -hmm. of the Mummy movies, you know, which caused the uh, and the curse of Superman. Of course, there's always these things yeah. that 
turn out to be not statistically related at all, but they make good good PR. But but yeah, but, but, yes. Uh, but a horrible thought. Thank you, Brendan. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. The sexy room scene where Gig Young is bit getting seduced by the sexy women, <laughs> and he's pushing buttons and all the erotic stuffs happening around him, and they're coming in their various outfits. And I thought that could not have been more British sex comedies from the 1970s <laughs> if they tried. That was straight from Adventures of a Private Eye, except with a bit bigger budget, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was very funny. And I also liked, and I don't know if this was at all true. Um, I did think that the monsters that kept coming in, each of the monsters looked like a Trek monster. So the monkey thing that was around early on looked a lot like the Mugatu. <laughs> from uh, Star yeah. Trek. Um, yeah. And then John Hurt turned into a Gorn at the end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, John Hurt was so great in this. <laughs> Well, he, he is cut above, isn't he? I mean, I did notice that the second he gets off the plane, the acting. Whoa, that's there's he suddenly realized there's a proper actor on board. That was that was fascinating. But also that Gorn creature um, is very prominent on the front cover of the DVD and you never see it. But with its face obscured in the in the uh, in the actual film itself. Uh, uh, sorry, yeah. I, I, one last comment I've got to make. <laughs> Gordon Jackson, of course, Hudson mm. upstairs down. So Gordon Jackson plays the police inspector, the police Inspector. I quite like that. The police inspector, inspector. So that's the end of my jokes for the evening. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Uh, now, Patrick. Patrick, right. with the Darren Brown bullshit. And also very nice to meet you and thank you for coming on the show. With the Darren Brown, lead me down the garden path. So, Patrick, tell us about A Taste of Blood. A rare experience in terror awaits you. A descendant of the dreaded Count Dracula comes to life, and a hideous orgy of murder and blood begins. A taste of blood. So this was it really what would be Herschel Gordon Lewis, the godfather of gore, his first uh, full-on horror outing since Color Me Blood Red. Uh, he had been in a, a lawsuit with the partners for the first three of the films that he did, Blood Feast, uh, 2000 Maniacs, Color Me Blood Red. And it had sort of dissolved the partnership, notably with Dave Friedman. And he wanted to do something that was more uh, more of a real horror film, a legitimate horror film, where he wanted to use intensive gore rather than extensive gore. He wanted better production values. And you really see it in this film. It's... it's um, about twice the budget of Blood Feast in today's dollars, if you looked it up, if you look it up, and, and it centers around uh, a character played by Bill Rogers, who was a Miami institution at the time. If you have seen any of the K. Gordon Murray films that were imported from Mexico, I think he voices ninety percent of the characters on all of those films. Like, say, for example, Invasion of the Vampires. So uh, John, he plays John Stone, who's a successful Miami businessman. He receives a a mysterious package from England with a with a letter from the solicitor saying he's a descendant of Baron Vada Crone, uh, and in it are, are two antique bottles of brandy, which he which he which he drinks, since the will stipulates he must toast to his ancestor, and he undergoes a sinister transformation. And I think you know, based on the rather innocuous title, you see what uh, what was in those bottles. <laughs> I think that's a good summary. Do you think there's a clue in his middle name? <laughs> John Alicar Stone. Just, just oh, a clue. Is that is that his middle name? That is his middle I, name, yeah. John Alicar Stone. <laughs> so, the, so th- there was a guy called Duck Stanford, and he went to Herschel Gordon Lewis early on. He's credited as Donald Stanford in the film, and he had this mismatched pile of typewritten manuscript or a typewritten script which he said to Herschel Gordon-Lewis in Chicago at the time that he had shown to Sammy Davis Jr. and to Sinatra, and they were interested in producing, but he was going to give Herschel Gordon-Lewis first crack at it. And the script, which later became A Taste of Blood that Duck Stanford wrote, was originally entitled The Secret of Dr. Alucard. So that makes sense. <laughs> and, and what a, you know, what what did Herschel do with it? Well, okay. So, so, so is this is this the US of the 1960s? Everything is golf mm-hmm. courses and whiskey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was so suburban. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, particularly the, uh, the he 
he used an actual film in Coral Gables, which if, if you know the area of South Miami, of lar very large estates and beautiful houses. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a beautiful neighborhood. And he, he went to a, a real estate developer friend of his who I think actually owned the house and lived in the house. And that's where he shot most of the interiors uh, for the house. Uh, and it was, he used all of the contemporary, contemporary decor that this man, you know, uh, in the house. And, and it really, it really shows well, right? And particularly in the, and I, I understand the movie has a very long running time. And that was part of what, and I apologize now to the team. Uh, this is this is what Herschel was going for. He wanted, you know, he wanted the film that had longer takes, and uh, all of the sets I think are really shown to good effect in these longer longer takes. Plus, he had he had Bill Rogers, who was really a good actor, and had been in Love Goddess and Blood Island and some other things that uh, they they you know uh, at this, in the same year he also did Shanty Tramp with K. Gordon Murray. In fact, the entire cast did it. And uh, he also had Bill Kerwin, who was just, you know, who played the love interest in the love triangle, who was the detective from Blood Feast. And his stock player was in Scum of the Earth. And that guy was a really, really good actor. I mean, despite the fact that, you know, he was always, you know, probably hammered on Rob Roy. As he, <laughs> he was he was really he, he was always really good. And apparently he was very dependable behind the scenes as well. So there was a, a lot of production value. A lot of night for night, which you normally don't see in a Herschel Gordon Lewis production. And some of those compositions, like near at the very end when Stone is in the pool and they've got the blue light on him, and that whole sense of abandonment as he's walking out. I mean, the composition of that scene. I mean, I'm actually getting chills just thinking about it right now. It's uh, it's very unlike a Herschel Gordon Lewis film. And I, I I said it's his first full on horror film, and that's to contrast something weird which came out the same year. And I, I don't want to get in trouble with the admins of the group. That is a supernatural thriller, not a horror film. <laughs> ah, excellent. Okay. Um, Nancy, um, I, I, have you seen Plenty of Herschel Gordon Lewis before? Or? I've actually seen this one, but it was quite a long time since I've seen it. So it was nice to have another look at it with fresh eyes. And um I was really surprised about the runtime when I first went, because when I think Herschel Gordon Lewis, I don't think, you know, two hours, but this was clearly his attempt at making, you know, a real commercial profitable film as opposed to, you know, some of the ones that he had made previously. I did really enjoy a lot of like the MCM styling that they have, and it was very nice sets and production that way. Um, it made me laugh when he was drinking the brandy because he just tossed it right back, like <laughs> no savoring or anything. Just I'm gonna toast to my ancestors and off we go. But it's supposed to have lasted him six months, isn't it? And you think that's not gonna last you two nights, mate. That's not gonna last you <laughs> two nights, swinging it back like that. <laughs> sure. Um, one thing that I kind of wished was that we would have seen a little bit more of the Hester character. She seemed really mm. fun and like she, she did brought more to it. They were saving her for the series. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Just a quick aside, she married the the gentleman who played Dr. Howard Helsing after the, oh. they met on the they did met on the see? production. Yeah, she married him. Yeah. That's uh Otto Schlesinger, who was also in Shanty Tramp. I've got to say, quite possibly the least dynamic Van Helsing we've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> the first time yeah. we've ever seen Mr. Business executive Van Helsing. <laughs> yeah, who can draw inferences from newspaper clippings he's never seen across the sea about Dracula being resurrected in South Miami. <laughs> <laughs> ah, superb. Brendan, did you have a good time? Uh, yeah, it was great. I, I was surprised, actually. I'd seen uh, a couple of uh, Gordon Lewis's films before. Uh, and this movie was not what I was expecting. I was expecting <laughs> uh, something quite different. I was surprised uh, at how well made it was. Uh, I don't mean to sound that to sound uh, as a negative towards his other films, but his other films are very budget, and but they know what they are. Um, but this felt like his stab at Hammer, um, uh, and it was really interesting. And the, the, the runtime as well was very ambitious. Uh, but I think uh, uh, Bill Rogers absolutely carried it. He For me, he felt like, <laughs> a bit like Chevy Chase doing an impression of Christopher Lee. 
Oh, yes. No, de definitely Christopher Lee. Yeah. I was getting yeah. that all the time. Very much like Christopher Lee vibe. And mm -hmm. I thought the Chevy Chase, but it's genius. And so are you, you waiting just to take a tumble and announce it was Saturday night or what? Yeah. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> it looked like he was about to, uh, to tell you the punchline for a joke throughout the whole movie. <laughs> Uh, it was great. The uh, only surprising thing to me was the lack of sex, to be honest. Uh, it seemed like he spent most of the movie just trying to get his wife to like him. <laughs> that poor sad vampire. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if he hadn't drunk the brandy, it'd have been all right. <laughs> <clears throat> so it was... Um... I was intrigued throughout. Uh, first of all, obviously, I love all the Dracula references. Like everybody's a Dracula character, but it was it was um, it reminded me of Count Yorga a bit as well. The Count Yorga movies, in as much as yeah. it's vampires in suburbia, um, right. with that whole that whole vibe from that era, which was quite intriguing. Uh, there, was a, there were a couple of cheap movie throwaways which I can't avoid commenting on. The bit I, I love the fact that he knocked those two chess pieces over. Um, and then he goes up to England, murders somebody, comes back a month later, and those two chess pieces are still down. Still, nobody's tidied up his chess pieces in a month. <laughs> so, that made me laugh. Um, I did think, uh, oh, what on earth was going on with Detective Dog at the end? We've got this climax. We've got this crucial thing going on. We've got our heroine being chased by the vampire. They're all being chased by the heroes. Everything's happening, and in comes, in comes a bit of comic relief. For the last two minutes look i've got this detective weird. What, what's going that on i mean funnily enough actually did make me laugh um but it wasn't what i was expecting from it <laughs> mm -hmm. and now i'm going to print it again the, the big reveal what was the darren brown shit here okay so nancy brendan i've got to tell you here that patrick was the first to come up with any suggestions okay but patrick said to me i got three movies three movies for you uh and he gave me the choice of the three movies and I said, well, let's see what Nancy and Brennan pick. And then we'll try and pick one that's a contrast, you know. So we went through, you pick your choices. And then Patrick comes up with these three. I said, well, of those three, let's pick the Herschel Gordon Lewis. Um, and then I'm watching this Herschel. Oh, by the way, I should say I'm Herschel Gordon Lewis virgin. I've never seen a Herschel Gordon Lewis film. But I'm watching. And I've been led down the garden path by Patrick here. And I'm watching this. And suddenly on comes this character. And he's talking in this Dick Van Dyke English accent. Hi, a governor. Ain't a fit not for the devil. I wouldn't know. Is my luggage aboard? What now, Governor? You're in flight room number seven, uh, down the deck and up the stairs there. And he's a sailor, and he's a sailor. And those, he could have given he could have given you know voice lessons to Dick Van Dyke. He was that authentic uh, for this Cockney accent. <laughs> and I think and I think this guy's really familiar. Where have I seen his face before? Where do I know? And I look at Patrick Burns's Facebook profile, and it's that guy, the <laughs> sailor, Herschel Gordon Lewis. The sailor is your Facebook profile picture. Tell us, Patrick, did you really work some Darren Brown shit to lead me all the way to one of your favorite movies? You know, I Steve, when I when I picked the three films that, that I gave, I tried to pick films that I thought would be accessible to the vast majority of the members of the, of the group, and and outside that. And this one had such an interesting pedigree. Uh, and I thought the two other ones were very good. One was a Larry Buchanan film. Um, but no, I mean, it's, it just happens to be my favorite Herschel Gordon Lewis film. I love the story he tells about how he had to play that part. They actually had an Englishman in Miami and they were gonna play him, they were gonna pay him 50 bucks, okay? So what happened was they went to Dodge Island, which is essentially the port of Miami and they found a boat for free. And they said, you can film on the boat for one hour while the stevedores are having their lunch or, or while they're having their dinner. So they, they really had to get this done. So this guy didn't show up. They, they drove out to his house, tried to find him, didn't show up. Uh, they, they, then finally Herschel, he puts on the thing. He doesn't want to get in trouble with the union. They, they snip off a hair, uh, you know, the hair off the cameraman, blew it on his lip. <laughs> Literally, the, the, the cameraman's name was Bobby Veracruz, and he had long hair, so they glued, they glued it on there, and he played the scene, and they had in the one hour, you know, the two, the two or three scenes that they had, very brief. Uh, yeah, and, and that was him. And that was the only cameo other than, I think, one other, and it was another mistaken cameo. Unlike Friedman, uh, Hirsch did not want to do cameos. He did not like him, you know, whereas Friedman called himself the Hitchcock of the Nudies. And he was in every one of his films. In fact, I think Friedman was also in Blood Feast as the drunken guy in the motel uh, when the lady gets her tongue ripped out. 
So yeah, that's how that story came about. And I love how I love how he tells the story. I love just the absolute ridiculous of the accent accent. I just love the whole <laughs> character. So yeah. It was great. And and you know, another one of our short excursions to London. Go on, Brendan. You will notice there that Patrick didn't actually answer your question about the Darren Brown shit. Yeah, what's some Darren Brown <laughs> shit going on? I'm sure in a minute he's going to ask you to look in your picture and there'll be a pocket and there'll be a picture of Fashion Born Lewis, no doubt. <laughs> Guys, thanks everybody. Really intriguing and illuminating discussions. Going to recommend to the listeners, there'll be links to the movies uh, in the show notes, which always are on the Bristol Cult Film Society uh, Facebook page. So please go and have a look there. Uh, thanks everybody. And uh, well, See you all very soon. As ever, our BCFS cultists know their onions and their bread sauce and their chipolatas. But wait, there's still one present left. Looking to surprise the unsurprisable, to please the pernickety, to cultivate yet more clutter? Who is that howling in front of Rudolph? Who's that necromancer in front of Prancer? It's the Blu-ray Bloodhound. It's that time we've all been waiting for. He's here. He's the wizard of widescreen, the fakir of full screen, the prince of pan and scan. It's our very own Blu-ray bloodhound, Mr. John Kirk. Thanks, Steve. Wow, I, my intro last time was fantastic, but I think you've done even better this time. That's phenomenal. Thank you so much. Right, we're nearly there, the end of 2023, and that means it's the final month of Blu-ray releases for the year, the final push before the festive period, the final treats to tickle the fancy. So let's see what delights could be awaiting you under your Christmas tree this year. First up, I'm going to focus on four of the best UT UK boutique Blu-ray labels with in-depth thoughts on upcoming releases before a whistle-stop tour with some of the other cult gems being released in December 2023. First up is Arrow, who listeners to the first two editions will know I'm a big fan of. They don't get the love they used to, but for me they've had a very strong 2023 with some packed film collections in particular, and December is no different with two limited edition box sets. This time they're releasing a box set of the original series of Charles Play films, so that means no reimagining with Luke Skywalker out to Mark Hamill as the voice of Chucky. No, this set is the original run featuring Brad Dourif as the voice of the doll, which is inhabited by the soul of serial killer Charles Lee Ray. Chucky's very much going strong at the moment. Just check out the TV series, which is now on to season three, I believe. So what better time than now to revisit the original films that started it all? On 11th of December, Arrow are bringing us separate 4K and Blu-ray editions, packing in Charles Play 1, 2 and 3, plus Bride, Seed, Curse and Cult of Chucky. Now, a word of warning, in both the 4K and Blu-ray sets, the first film is a Blu-ray featuring a 2012 remaster and the final disc, which contains Cara Elise Gardner's documentary Living with Chucky, is also a Blu-ray in the 4K set too. But the rest of the discs in the 4K have new transfers and are 4K discs. Overall, the set looks like it's better than the previous release that we got in the UK from Warner Home Video. There's limited edition packaging, an illustrated collector's booklet, three double-sided fold-out posters, and loads of audio commentaries, featurettes, and documentaries, though none of the on-disc extras seem exclusive to this set. Arrow are also releasing Savage Guns, four classic westerns, volume three on the same date, which means four more Italian spaghetti westerns, and I'm totally up for that after the first two sets. Um, the third volume features Paolo Bianchini's I Want Him Dead, which stars American actor Craig Hill, Eduardo Molagier's El Puro, which stars Robert Woods, Mario Camus's Wrath of the Wind, featuring the great Terence Hill, and the real highlight of the set for me, Splatter King Lucio Fulci's For the Apocalypse, which is a film I've been waiting to see for a long time. And that one stars Fabio Testi and the absolute icon of Italian cinema, Thomas Millian. All four films are 2K restorations. There's new introductions to each movie by journalist Fabio Melilli, a collector's booklet, a poster, different versions of the films, new audio commentaries, new interviews, new video essays, and appreciations of the soundtrack by musician and collector Lovely John. The soundtrack appreciations have been highlights of the previous set, so it's great to see more on this release, and they should be an excellent listen. Up next, it's the final releases from a stellar first year for Radiance Films, and they've also given us a new box set, World Noir Volume 1. This set focuses on the 1950s and features Koryoshi's Kurahara's I Am Waiting, which is from the pioneering Japanese studio Nikatsu. The second film is Eduardo Molinaro's Witness in the City, 
And the third is Pietro Gemi's The Facts of Murder, which features a fantastic cast, including Claudio Cardinale. The set features two world Blu-ray premieres and one UK Blu-ray premiere, a limited edition 80-page booklet and some intriguing on-disc extras. It's released on 18th of December. On the same date, Radiance also brings us Elegant Beast, directed by Yuzo Kawashima, who is a mentor of the phenomenal director Shohi Imamura, who's one of my faves. The film was adapted by Kanito Shindo, writer and director of the atmospheric ghostly horror Anibaba, uh, from his own stage play. And the disc features a video essay by critic Tom Mess on post-war architecture in Japanese cinema, amongst other on-disc extras, together with a limited edition booklet. I've literally just watched this film and penned my review of the Blu-ray for Blueprint Review as I record this, and I can tell you the film and the disc are a real treat. Finally, for December from Radiance, we get two more releases uh, from other labels which they have distribution rights for in the UK. First up is Maru's release of Black God, White Devil, an award-winning Brazilian film. Uh, the disc has a brand new 4K restoration and two feature-length documentaries on the disc among other extras. And if it's anything like Maru's first release, Man Marked for Death 20 years later, it should be something very special indeed. Finally, we get the Raro video release of Ricardo Freire's Murder Obsession, uh, which contains the original Italian edit, plus for the first time on disc, the shorter re-edited English version and electronic score. There's loads of extras on this one, as well as a limited edition booklet, and it follows the fabulous Radiance edition of Freire's The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock from a couple of months ago. Both of these releases were also out on 18th of December. Next up, those lovely people at Eureka are continuing their quest to release the best in Asian cinema with two new releases and a standard 4K reissue of their excellent Police Story trilogy release. Up first is Casino Raiders, a 1989 Hong Kong gambling set thriller starring Andy Lau and Alam Tam. This features limited edition O-card slipcase and booklet for the first 2,000 copies, plus two new commentaries, one with Asian film expert Frank Jeng and the other with action cinema experts Mike Leader and Arne Van Emmer plus a new featurette on Hong Kong gambling culture. Next is Battle Royale director Kinji Fukasaku's 1978 classic, which has been long awaited on Blu-ray in the UK, The Fall of Eiko Castle. Now, this is a treat. It packs in two absolute icons of Japanese cinema, Toshi, uh, Toshiro Mifune, who is in Akira Kurosawa's Peerless Seven Samurai, amongst others, and the Street Fighter star Sonny Chiba. This is out on Eureka's Masters of Cinema label. There were the December releases on their classics range. And again, features a limited edition O-card slipcase and booklet for the first 2,000 copies, plus three new extras featuring three of the best Asian cinema experts, an audio commentary with critic Tom Mess, an interview with Tony Raines, and a video essay by author Jasper Sharp. Finally, from Eureka is that aforementioned police story reissue. This is just the disc, so no rigid hard case or book that we got in the limited set. But my, what a stacked edition this is of three of, for me, the best action films going. We get Police Story, Police Story 2, and Police Story 3 Supercop. All feature some ridiculously good and dangerous stunts from the great Jackie Chan. And the latter adds in some outrageous stunt sequences featuring future Bond girl and recent Oscar winner Michelle Yeoh. The discs are packed with commentaries, alternate versions of the films, the Jackie Chan episode of Jonathan Ross's classics under the incredibly strange film show, outtakes and loads of archival interviews. If you missed the original edition, this is the UK release to get. My last in-depth look this month is from Second Run, who only released one disc or, or set a month, really, but it's always amongst the best um, each month. Their December release is a real treat. Three films by Jerzy Skolomitz, Kalimowski, Walkover, Barrier, and Dialogue 2046. The set also contains early short films from the Polish filmmaker and artist. Now, back in the day, the Bristol Court Film Society used to host monthly film screenings at 20th Century Flicks in the city. It's a gem of a video store that's got two intimate screens with only a small number of seats. And one of my personal favourite showings was of Skolimowski's The Shout, uh, which if you've not seen, it's a really unsettling film about an asylum inmate with supernatural powers. And it stars Alan Bates, Susanna York, John Hurt, Tim Curry, amongst others. Uh, this isn't in this set, but this is some of the uh, Polish directors, other films that look absolutely phenomenal. It's a limited edition set uh, from Second Run. It's on, out on 11th of December. There's new restorations, booklets with new writing on the films by filmmaker, author and Polish cinema specialist David Thompson. Introductions by Polish cinema expert Mikhail Olszek. And audio commentaries on Walkover and Barrier by film historian Michael Brook, who's incredibly knowledgeable and always worth a listen. 
So that's it for the in-depth roundup. But there's a brief tour on the way now from some of the other UK booty Blu-ray releases out just before Christmas. So first is the Criterion Collection release of Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which is out on dual 4K UHD and Blu-ray edition, as well as a Blu-ray-only version on 18th of December. This director-approved edition's packed includes a 4K digital master of the film, supervised by del Toro and co-director Mark Gustafsson, a documentary, interview with both directors, conversation with del Toro and film critic Favon and smith Neem, a panel discussion, conversation with the two directors and author Neil Gaiman, and much more. The dual edition's the one to go for. It's, it's got some truly beautiful packaging, which the standard Blu-ray doesn't. Uh, Criterion also bring us the UK debut of their edition of Charlie Chaplin's The Circus, and that's a disc which has been out in the US for a few years now. Um, love Silent Cinema, as you'll, you'll know from previous editions, and the Criterion Chaplin releases are real gems, and I hope we get more in the UK. This one features a 4K digital restoration of the movie, an audio commentary, various interviews and documentaries, together with an unused sequence, outtakes, and an essay by critic Pamela Hutchinson, amongst more extras. That's out on the 4th of December. On the same date, we get an 88 film release of The Inspector Wears Skirts, uh, which is an action comedy produced by Jackie Chan, featuring a number of female stars, including the great Cynthia Rothrock, who we've had quite a, a few releases of over the past year or so. Uh, the disc features an audio commentary with Frank Jeng, two interviews, and packs a new, tape, new 2K restoration from the original negative. Also on 4th of December, it's getting pretty busy this date, is another 88 film release, this time of The Blue G Monster, a gross-out horror comedy, uh, from Hong Kong. Their first run includes an O-ring, double-sided photo poster, and the disc includes an interview with assistant director Sam Leong. Now, finally, uh, four releases from Powerhouse Films, and they're all uh, 1930s films on their indicator label, and they're also all out on the 11th of December, each feature audio commentaries, and each feature limited edition booklets. First up is Frank Posaggi's Romantic Crime Caper Desire, starring Marlena Dietrich and Gary Cooper. And this has got an, a commentary with the always entertaining film historian David Dalval. Uh, film historian Natalie Morris uh, does a feature on Gary Cooper, and there's also a Lux Radio Theatre ad adaptation of the same story. Love Me Tonight from Ruben Mamoulian who's the Song of Songs, was released on the indicator label not too long ago, uh, features Jeff Andrew on Love Me Tonight and some classic Hollywood on Parade newsreel, newsreel excerpts. Claudette Colbert and Frederick March star in Dorothy Asner's Honor Among Lovers, which also features Charlie Ruggles and Ginger Rogers. On this disc, we get Lucy Bolton looking at the early career of Ginger Rogers and a selection of Dorothy Asner shorts, which she directed for the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps during the Second World War. The last of the four is another in the growing list of excellent releases of Joseph von Sternberg films on the label. This time, it's an American tragedy, which is based on a novel by Theodore Dreiser, which would later be adapted as A Place in the Sun, which starred Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor, and probably a bit more of a famous version of the story. It's inspired by a notorious real-life murder case, and this version, released on the Indicator label, stars German actor Phillips Holmes and Sylvia Sidney. Tony Raines provides an extensive discussion of the film on this disc, and there's also a video essay by film historian Tag Gallagher. Now, before I bid you farewell for another month, here's my tip for an upcoming release to look out for, and I'm sticking with Powerhouse Films and their phenomenal indicator label. In January, they're releasing The Man Who Had Power Over Women. This is a real treasure from the late 1960s from director John Krish, who's one of my personal favourite directors. As well as feature films, he brought us some classic documentaries, Children's Film Foundation films, and some of the most unsettling public information films. If you remember The Finishing Line or Sewing Machine, for instance, they're from him, and you won't forget them if you've seen them. Um, I'll be delving into this one a bit more in the next instalment, uh, but a heads up that if you fancy this one, you won't find it anywhere but the Powerhouse Films Indicator website. It's a web store exclusive, and it's limited to 3,000 copies. Thanks for listening. And I want to wish you, Steve, and all of our listeners a Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year. So, John, going back to where you started, you talked about Child's Play and the box set of yeah. Child's Play. And you said that the first disc wasn't a 4K in a 4K, mostly 4K box set. The original <laughs> Child's Play wasn't in 4K. Why do you think that might be? Yeah, that's the, definitely the case. Um, so there's two discs, not in 4K. The other's a documentary. Fine, that's OK. But yeah, Child's Play... Um, it's the film I imagine most people would want in 4K, isn't it? Um, it's a strange one, as I believe there is a 4K release in the US. 
but this is our hope. There's going to be a good reason. Um, this is purely my thoughts, but I wonder whether it's a similar situation to the Enter the Dragon disc that was on our 4K set of Bruce Lee films from earlier this year. So the other films were all 4K, but Enter the Dragon wasn't. The reason that was the case was because Warner Home Video had their own 4K release planned of Enter the Dragon. That came out a couple of weeks after the Arrow set. So Charles Play in the UK is also Warner, and I do wonder whether Warner have got their own UK 4K release planned, which is why we're only getting the Blu-ray of the film in the set. I'm not sure. We'll have to wait and see. That would make a lot of sense. Now, now John, there's something I've got to pin you down. Something we've been asking about in the Facebook group. You've been trumpeting this forthcoming Pete Walker box set for quite some time. And in fact, rumour has it it's been delayed specifically because the demand that you've placed on the system by plugging it so much in the Blu-ray Bloodhound. Um, have you heard any more about that? That's brilliant. Yeah, well, I hope, I hope I've got something to do with it and it's going to be a better set. No, it is a running joke, isn't it, in the Facebook group? Um, it feels like a long, long time ago that 88 Films first announced it. We've seen the artwork, they've announced the extras for it too. I think I said in the first edition of this very podcast that they delayed it because it was their biggest release yet and they um, wanted to, you know, just needed to do a bit more work than they thought, to be honest. Uh, they recently actually announced their slate of January-March releases and the Pete Walker set was conspicuous by its absence. Um, however, they were challenged on this and actually came back on, the fa- on, on their own Facebook page to say, it's coming. So it's due in March 2024, according to 88 films themselves, uh, going really well. So we haven't got too long to wait. Well, I can't wait to see Sheila Keith doing very strange things in high resolution. I can't wait to see all of it in high resolution because I've not seen any of the films in the set, if I'm honest. I've got the uh, other 88 set, which focused a bit more on his sex films, which was a good set. Um, and I've seen Man of Violence as well, which came out on the BFI flip side, which was really good. But I've not seen, and there's so many great films in this set. And our illustrious leader, Steve, has been saying I must see Frightmare um, House of um, House of Whipcord for so much, so so long now. So a few months I'll be able to see what I think and can't wait. There you go. Our Blu-ray Bloodhound on the trail as ever. Thank you, John Kirk. That is it for this time, but I just wanted to recommend a couple of my favourite film podcasts out there to listen to over the Christmas break. Gorgeous Gareth Preston has been producing his Very British Futures podcast for a couple of years now and explores strange, new and very old worlds of science fiction with depth and humour and some excellent guests. I can particularly recommend his leap 20 minutes into the future with Max Headroom. Well, I would. I'm on it. This is Max Headroom on Big Time Television. And my old mate Zach Eastman is the absolutely tireless creator of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review, a remarkable archive of the odd, the cool and the cult, featuring everyone from Jimmy Cagney to William Castle and everything in between. His recent Jacques Tati series has been masterful. So that's Very British Futures and the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Do look them out on your favourite podcatchers. That's it for this time. Why not show some New Year's resolution and join us in January for three more explorations into filth and fantasy. And don't forget to join the Facebook group, the Bristol Cold Film Society, for many more riotous recommendations where this lot came from. Pod people this time. Pod people this time include Alicia Ann Archer with her sonorous sonatas. Thank you, Alicia. Our guests were Brendan King with The Mad Bomber, Nancy Kelly with Gene Roddenberry Spectre, and Patrick Burns with Herschel Gordon Lewis, A Taste of Blood. John Kirk is the Blu-ray Bloodhound. And let us all bow prostrate in front of our glorious leader, Steve Naive. Whose idea it was in the first place. The pod was written, produced, and presented by me, Shameful Steve Noble. I'm Shameful Steve on Twitter. And remember. He slipped and broke his neck, died instantly. And that's how I found out there was no Santa Claus. <laughs>